So there are many great names for Jesus, okay? Many great names that we see throughout Scripture describing who Jesus is. And all of these names are lovely. They're all, I would say, necessary to who Jesus is, to describing who he is. So what I mean by that is they don't stand on their own. Collectively, they all, all of these names for Jesus um, help describe who he is. So names, and it's not an exhaustive list, but names like lamb, servant, shepherd, king, savior, uh, and there are many more. And so over the coming weeks, we as a church are going to be looking at some of the names of Jesus. And of course, they're just a snapshot of who he is. They don't, they don't give the full picture, um, but they give a snapshot. And I hope, I trust, they will direct our gaze towards Jesus this Christmas season, to the one who is most glorious. Am I allowed to mention Christmas? I think I am. I think we're officially on our way to Christmas. So that's where we want to look this Christmas season, the one who is most deserving of our praise and our commitment. What good is it praising a God if you don't actually follow after him, if you're not committed to him? The name of Jesus as mediator is a particularly glorious one, a particularly wonderful one. And why is that? Well, I hope by the end of the sermon, you'll be able to tell me. I hope you'll understand for yourself why the name of Jesus mediator is a particularly glorious one. So let's read. Um, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm just going to read from verse 1 to 7. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So keep that open because that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, so just keep that open on your lap and we'll be coming back to it. You might see that Paul begins this section of his letter to... Uh, to Timothy. Uh, now, just a little bit of context. He's he had trained up Timothy, this young man in the faith. He trained him up, and he had left him in this church in Ephesus to lead the church. So Paul had helped plant the church and then left Timothy there to, to oversee it, uh, to guide them as a young church. So he begins this section of his letter by reminding Timothy and the church in Ephesus that they're not to be exclusive in their faith in Jesus. And so as they share the gospel, they're also to pray for the salvation of those people they share the gospel with. But again, isn't that kind of the point? When you share the gospel with people, you also then want to pray that they'll be saved, that they will believe that gospel, that they will be saved. So there's a reminder for us here as people, if, if, if we are Christians, if we follow after Christ, we are to pray and in a sense intercede before God on behalf of those who are lost and dead in their sin, as all of us once were. And because we'll see in this passage this morning, we have one who intercedes for us in Jesus before God. 
Now, God knows those who will be saved. So when you share the gospel with people, God already knows those people who will trust in him, who will follow him, and those who won't. I would say, thankfully, we don't know. Because if we do, if we did know, what would it probably do? It means we would stop praying, isn't it? If I knew I'm sharing the gospel with this person, but there's no way they're going to trust in God, why would I bother praying for them? Why would, I, why would I care whether they're going to believe or not? In fact, I already know they won't. So we are to have an attitude of continuing to pray for the salvation of those around us. Because when I think of my own life, I have a tendency to do the opposite. I must admit that before God and before you. I have a tendency to look at certain people in my life and think, I, don't, I just don't think that person will ever trust in God. So it could be someone in my family. It could be, it could be a neighbor. It could be a colleague. And I just kind of think to myself, I just, they just seem so hard-heartened. Or they seem so confident in the way they live their life. I kind of almost think, like, do they even need God? Like, I, I start doubting myself. Like, should I even share the gospel? It says a lot about my own insecurity, doesn't it? About sharing the gospel with them. And how much more can be said about those who are in authority or those who are in leadership. So think of those who are in leadership, uh, both locally, like local you know, politicians, or within our, our, our own country. We can sort of have this attitude of, Surely they would never trust in God. But we are reminded here, and we're actually instructed to pray for these people. He says at the start, pray for kings and all who are in high positions. And so Paul knows well what it means when he's saying this. He's not taking this lightly. When he's saying to the, the early newly formed church in Ephesus, pray for kings and all who are in high places, he's speaking about even those people who persecute them. So even the, the evil and cruel emperor at that time, Nero, you've probably heard of him, particularly cruel and nasty man, and he was ruling over them. He was persecuting their church, and yet Paul is saying, pray for him. Pray for these people who rule over you. So we are to pray for the salvation of all people, and if that seems too vague, if you're kind of thinking, what does that mean? Pray for those people you know. Pray for those people who are in your life, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your work, that sort of that bubble as it goes out. Pray for these people by name, and then also pray for those who are in leadership over us. And Paul gives two clear reasons why we should pray for others. So he's not just splitting this out, he's actually very deliberate in what he's writing, and he gives us two reasons. The first one we mightn't really think of, probably doesn't maybe make as much sense to us. The second one is, is clearer, it seems more obvious. But the first reason he gives is that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So peaceful life refers to the absence of internal disturbances. The absence of internal disturbances. Quiet life is the absence of external disturbances. So peaceful and quiet life means you don't have internal or external disturbances coming at you. What is clear for us as Christians, and I'm drawing that from here and from throughout Scripture, is that we are to remain committed to the truth of the gospel. We are not to go out of our way to disrupt the communities that we live in. If I was to put that way more clearly, as Christians, persecution should only come from righteous living, not civil disobedience. So as Christians, persecution should only come from righteous living, not civil disobedience. So Paul, in a sense, is he's calling the church back to a godly, 
dignified lifestyle. Holy living is what he's reminding them that they should be living. If you just think for a second of the religious freedom we have in Ireland, like right now, think about it. So in this small town called Passage West that many people around the world I'm confident have never heard of, we can meet in this sports hall, is it sports? Yeah, sports hall, in a local school with total freedom to sing songs of worship to God, to open up his word and preach, teach. And we can do that with total freedom. So should we seek to go out of our way then to change that, to get rid of that freedom? Of course not. That would be foolishness, wouldn't it? Why would we do that? But what we can be sure of, if we represent Jesus, persecution will come. Okay, it's a given. It says it in Scripture, forms of persecution will come, but let it come from our defense of the gospel, not of our own personal grievances or frustrations, whether that's with people in our family, in our neighborhood, figures of authority. Instead, we should be praying that our leaders will make wise decisions, godly decisions. And it's not unholy to pray that as a result of having good, competent leaders, that we then as Christians could live a peaceful and quiet life. It's, it's a good thing. So we should pray for that. That's one perhaps selfish reason that we should pray for all around us and pray for our leaders. The second reason, as I said, makes a bit more sense. It's a bit more obvious. It's that God desires that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So look at verse 3. It says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So God, by nature, is a saving God. Despite what people say, I don't think that's what generally people around us say about God. What I hear people saying is, God is a, a judgmental God. He allows evil to take place. He allows suffering to take place. If God really loved us, why would he allow all of this turmoil and trouble in my life and in the world around me? We don't have time to get into that this morning, but in a basic sense, that's a wrong view of who God is. You're misunderstanding who God is. Because by nature, God is a saving God. He is a saving God. Now, this title of God, our Savior, it's, it's actually unique to this letter of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and it's mentioned in Titus as well, but it's, it's not mentioned a whole lot else in the, in the New Testament, but it has its roots back in the Old Testament. It's always been there, that God is a saving God. Verses like Psalm 25 that says, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. So the second reason we should pray for all people and for our, for our leaders is that God desires that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Then that leads to a question, what is the truth? And it's kind of bizarre that I'd even have to say this, but in the world we live in, not everyone agrees that there is such a thing as truth. So people will say, well, you have your truth, I have my truth. There is such a thing as truth. So we're going to look at, at verse 5 there together. It says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So the knowledge of the truth that God desires for us all to have is this. Salvation is found in God alone, 
to the sole mediation of Jesus' atoning death. That's the truth that God wants us to see. Salvation is found in him alone through the sole mediation of Jesus' atoning death. And in Paul's second letter, so Paul writes this first letter to Timothy, and then he goes on and writes a second letter. And in that letter, he gives an example of people who were susceptible to false teaching. They had a tendency to lean towards false teaching. And the reason for that is he says they were always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Never able to arrive at God's saving truth in Jesus Christ. This reminded me of, have you ever heard the phrase professional student? Now, I'll, I'll start this by saying I place a high value on education. So I've done, and Ruth, we've done a lot of extra courses, extra training, so I value education. But you do meet certain people who, they seem to spend their whole life studying, their whole life studying. So they're in college, do their first course, they go and do another course. Ten years later, they're still in university. And you're kind of looking at them thinking, what's the point? Like, you're doing all of this learning, like, where is the doing? Like, are you not going to put this into action? I think this is kind of a similar thing to what Paul is saying in, in his second letter in Timothy, is these people who are kind of philosophizing, always, yeah, considering different types of truth, different types of knowledge, but never actually arriving at the truth, which is that we are saved, or we find our salvation in Christ alone. Verse 5, we're going to keep coming back to that, okay, in, in this morning's sermon, because that is, is the, the meat of this passage. It's the core message of uh, this section of the letter. It's where our focus um, should be this morning. And I want us to really understand what Paul is writing here, what he is saying to us, because it was clearly the most important thing to him. Did you hear what I just said? It was the most important thing to him. Not just the most important thing in this section of the letter, not just the most important thing in this letter, not just the most important thing in his teaching. It was in Paul's entire life, this was the most important thing to him. How do I know that? He tells us in verse 7. If you look at verse 7, he says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. The word that starts that, that verse 4 it's like, therefore. It means it's leading on from the verse before. It's, it's like me saying, you know, our baby Nisha was awake a lot last night. Therefore, I'm tired today. So it's leading on. She actually wasn't. She was very good last night. But it's leading on from the verse before. So Paul's whole purpose in his life was to proclaim, to preach, to herald the truths of verses 3 to 6. Now, is this a reason for you to believe? If you're a skeptic here this morning, if you're, you know, if you identify yourself as being an atheist or an agnostic, maybe you're sitting on the fence a bit, maybe you're just kind of bored by this guy standing up the front speaking and you don't really care that much this morning. Should this convince you to change the whole direction of your life? Well, perhaps not. I'll, I'll leave that up to, to God to do. But it should at least cause you to seriously consider why would this man, who was one who once persecuted the church of Jesus so violently that he had tried to destroy it, a man who was advancing in Judaism beyond anyone else his own age, self-described as being extremely zealous for the traditions of his father and opposed to the teaching of Jesus, what caused a man like that to do a complete U-turn? 
and now preach salvation in the name of Jesus alone. Because I firmly believe that if God can change the heart of a man like Paul, he can change a heart like yours. I would say if God can change a heart like mine, he can surely change a heart like yours. So let us uh, consider in more detail this key verse, verse 5, which again says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There are two scenarios that come into my mind when I think of a mediator. I don't know what comes into your mind, because there are many examples we could give. But the two things that come into my mind are war and the courtroom. War and a courtroom. So when there are two sides, or maybe more, and they're opposing each other, okay, they're in a, they're in a deadlock, and a settlement cannot be reached, there's a need for a mediator, someone to step in and seek a compromise from each side that will lead to some sort of settlement, some sort of agreement. And you've been seeing that this week, uh, if you're watching the news, in the ongoing conflict in the Middle East, You've seen certain countries like Egypt and Qatar mediating, and they actually use that word, mediating between Israel and Hamas to bring about this temporary ceasefire and the release, thank God, of, of some hostages there from Hamas. But for this passage this morning, I actually feel it's more appropriate to use the analogy of the courtroom. So that's where we're going to look this morning. And I want to describe a scene to you which is not unlike a courtroom. And you'll need to use your imagination, okay? So you can close your eyes if you want. You can just sit there. But the scene I'm going to describe is actually very real. It is very real. Though we cannot see it with our eyes here this morning, it's a scene that is going to be reality for every single person in this room and every person who has ever lived. And the truth of this I've drawn from God's word, so they're not, I haven't made these things up myself. So I want to describe this scene to you. There is a great white throne, and the judge, also called the Ancient of Days, Lord of heaven and earth, creator God, dressed in clothing that is white as snow, takes a seat on the throne. A stream of fire comes out before him, and a thousand thousands serve him, and ten thousand times ten thousand more stand before him. The court is in session. Judgment has commenced, and every person who ever lived, the great and the small, are standing before this throne. There are also books that are opened all around the throne. And the judge is holding one book open. It's called the Book of Life. Then everyone begins to bow their knee before the throne. And they begin to speak, confessing to God, recognizing that he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Some already know that, so they're actually singing praises, whilst the others are confessing this for the very first time. Then one by one, each person stands before the judge and gives an account of themselves before God. But regardless of what they say, everyone is judged according to what they have done. And all of this is recorded in those other books that are open around the throne. The angels are also there. They're, they're singing praise to God as they always do. 
but they also have another job. They're separating out the evil from the righteous. And there's a lake of fire. And anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life is thrown into it by the angels. Left are those who stand righteous before the judge. And as the judge looks out, he sees not many multitudes of individual righteous men and women, but he sees just one man, the Son of Man. The judge knows there are more, but it is on this one man's deeds that he judges the rest, and he finds them righteous. All of those remaining join the judge in heaven for eternity. I could go on to describe some of the wonders of that place, but all that needs to be said, it is, it is wonderful and magnificent and glorious for one sole reason, because it is where one dwells with God in perfect view of who he is, without any of the distractions of our own sin, our own self. Now that scene I described to you is both terrifying and wonderful. Terrifying if your name is not found written in the book of life, Wonderful if you have the Son of Man, Jesus the Christ, mediating before you, before the judge. And on that day when each one of us will stand before the judge, because that's what God's Word tells us will happen, God will accept only one mediator on our behalf. But we do have two options. We do have two options. Either you are judged by the life you lived, or you were judged based on the death Jesus died one or the other. Verse 5 again, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now this brings up some questions, not all of them I can answer. Maybe we can talk more afterwards if you have other questions, but some questions, obvious questions it raises is, why do we need a mediator between us and God? Why do we need someone to stand between us and God? Well, it's because of another word that you don't hear said very often. Thankfully, we do in this church. It's said a lot. It is sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I can admit, I know my own sinful heart. In fact, to the point that if my thoughts alone, so not even my actions, just my thoughts alone, were displayed on this screen behind me for all of you to see. Just from the last month alone, I would want the ground to swallow me up. I'm confident the same is true for you. If we were to display your thoughts alone just from the last month on this screen, would you sit here confidently before us all? All of those thoughts of pride and jealousy and greed and anger and lust and idolatry, And yet if you say, you know, I've I've never done those things, or they're only thoughts, like I'm still a good person, right? Like I, you know, generally I still try and live a good life. Well, listen to what Jesus says from various parts of the Bible. He says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Elsewhere in Scripture, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have sinned, we make him, it's God, a liar, and his word is not in us. See, God takes our sin seriously, even if we don't. God takes it seriously. So how can sinners like us come into the presence close to a holy and perfect God, only with Jesus as our mediator? So then another question it brings up is, why do we need Jesus then specifically as our mediator between us and God? So I've hopefully brought you to a place of at least considering that you need a mediator before God, but why does it have to be Jesus? Well, there are three reasons that I want to just briefly share with you this morning. And like I said, there, there will be others, but just to give us a, a taste or a sense of why we need Jesus as our mediator. The first reason is that offerings and sacrifices do not cover our sin. So the, the temporary measure of offering sacrifices to God to atone for or cover the sins of his people was part of the old covenant. And Shane's been reminding us of that in recent months, that the old covenant in the Old Testament has passed away. The new has come with Jesus. So this was but a shadow of what was to come. And even then, it was actually, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. We read in Hebrews 10, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and sin offerings. Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offerings of the body of Christ once for all. So the first reason, sacrifice and offerings no longer work to cover our sin. Second reason we need Jesus as mediator between us and God is no one else can. No one else can. So as with sacrifice and offerings, the, the role of the priest interceding on behalf of the people before God was temporary. It was temporary in the Old Testament. When Jesus, the founder of the new covenant, came, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we access God the Father through Jesus alone, if we try and do it by any other person, alive or dead, they are simply a stumbling block in our path to God. Any other person, alive or dead, other than Jesus, is a stumbling block in our path to God. John Calvin, the well-known theologian, writing in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, this big bulky book, he writes uh, in relation to those who pray to saints or, or seek inter intercession by them before God. He says, by this anxiety, they dishonor Christ and rob him of his title of sole mediator, a title which given him by the Father as his special privilege ought not to be transferred to any other. So offering and sacrifice do not cover our sin. No one else can. And the third reason we need Jesus as our mediator between us and God is it is God's perfect plan. It is God's perfect plan. See, in the Old Testament, there were three separate offices or, or roles that people, of people who mediated between God and his people. And they were temporary roles. They were 
far from perfect because they were filled by imperfect people. And there are the roles of prophet, priest, and king. So firstly, prophet, the, the Old Testament mouthpiece of God to the people. So often when they were speaking, they would say, thus says the Lord. They were speaking to the people from God, warning them of their sin, directing them to follow God, to, to go after him rather than other idols or other gods. Jesus is the perfect prophet because he came not just proclaiming the word of God, he is the word of God. Jesus is the perfect prophet. Secondly, priest, as mediator, the high priest entered the holy place once a year. They would go in and, and atone for the sins of, of the people. But as we've seen already, no sin or no priest can take away our sin. So Jesus, as the perfect high priest, not only offered a sacrifice to God, he is the sacrifice before God. And thirdly, king. In the Old Testament, kings were put in place to, to rule over God's people with, with righteousness, ensuring peace and, and security and order. Yet even the most admired of Israelites' kings, King David, was deeply, deeply flawed. Jesus is the perfect king because he rules with true justice and is not only fought for our, our battles, but he has actually conquered our sin. Conquered it to the point that sin no longer rules over us as Christians. He is our king of kings. So in the Old Testament, these roles were, were held by different people. But Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And as the anointed one, he unites these roles together. That's why in Revelation 1 verse 5, he's called the faithful witness as, as prophet, the firstborn from the dead as priest, and the ruler of kings on earth as king. It was part of God's sovereign and perfect plan that as our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus is the only one qualified to mediate between us and God. Now, there's a whole further sermon that could be given on why Jesus needed to be both fully God and fully man, and why the cross, his death on the cross itself was, was unavoidable. But the glorious truth for us is that Jesus did die and rose from the dead. He now sits at the right hand of the Father, mediating on our behalf. And how beautiful a picture that is, that on that final judgment day, as I described earlier on, if you are one who has trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation, God will look out and not see you, but will see the righteousness of Jesus, the mediator between you and God. I'll close with this quote by a, another well-known uh, theologian of old called Ambrose. He says of Jesus, he is our mouth by which we speak to the Father, our eye by which we see the Father, our right hand by which we offer ourselves to the Father. Saved by his intercession, neither we nor any saints have any intimacy with God. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful that you had this perfect plan to put Jesus, your son, fully God and fully man as our mediator between us and you. God, we may not have a full understanding of this this morning. We may still be battling in our mind to understand what it means to trust in you, God. 
to not any longer trust in ourselves or the things of this world. But I pray that this morning this would be a seed planted, God, in our mind that would cause us to consider what it would mean to put our trust in you. And I pray, God, as we weigh up that truth that we would not spend even days or weeks toying around with what is truth, but that we would realize that here this morning we hold the very truth of God and it should cause us to come to you and give our whole lives to you, God. Thankful that on that final judgment day, we can be sure that Jesus will mediate on our behalf. You will not see our sin or the life we lived, but you will see the righteousness of Jesus. Father, help us to be people who pray. I think of my own family, many in my family who do not trust in you, who do not know you. I long for them to be saved, God. Please do that work of saving them. For my neighbors, even those brand new neighbors who only moved in yesterday, may I have an opportunity in the coming days to speak to them and speak to them of you, God. May I be gracious in how I speak, not toying it as if I have something that I am better, God. But I do have something which is better, which is you. And we should want to share that with others. I pray for our leaders, God. I pray for our Taoiseach, for our Taunishta. For all those who are in positions of leadership in our country, God, I do not envy their positions. I pray that they would lead well. I pray that they would be honoring to you in the decisions they make, God. Even as our country becomes increasingly liberal, God, may they continue to honor you. And may that continue to result in us being able to live a peaceful and quiet life as a church. To continue to do the work of sharing your gospel here in Passage and Cork and beyond. Even as we think of those missionaries that we support, God, as your word goes out to France and Dublin and Peru and many other places around the world, may your name be glorified, God, and may many come to trust in you. May all in this room know you as their God and their Lord and their Savior. Thank you for the name of Jesus as our mediator. Amen.